All right, so Jesus Revolution, really the whole movie focuses on the rise of the Jesus movement that took place in California in the uh, late 1960s. And uh, it centers around the, the ministry of Pastor Chuck Smith. And uh, when we're introduced to his character at the, the beginning of the movie, he's your very uh, traditional minister, suit and tie, really serious, really uptight. And he's leading this very traditional uh, church and, and congregation. But it was a church that was slowly dying because they were unable to connect with and reach the next generation, a generation uh, that was very different, that had a lot of different values and, and views when it came to life. But all that changed when Chuck's daughter brought this hippie home named Lonnie Frisbee. And uh, Lonnie was quite eccentric. I think he would have been a great addition to that 70s show. He would have fit uh, right in with, with that cast. Uh, but he had this real just authentic love and passion for Jesus that immediately got Chuck's attention. So Chuck invites him to his church, allows him to, to share for a little bit. And slowly, these, these other young hippies began attending this church. But of course, the longtime church members weren't a fan of this. They weren't comfortable with their church engaging with these kinds of, of people. And they went to, to the pastor and said, hey, if we don't do something about this, you know, we're, we're going to stop attending. We're going to stop giving. You're going to alienate you know, your, your congregation. And pastor Chuck uh, continued to invite and welcome these hippies into his church. And several of his, his longtime church members ended up leaving over this decision. But it was the beginning of a movement that would reach many hippies and many young adults, not just in California, but really all across the country. The other kind of central character throughout the movie is this young man named Greg Laurie. And uh, Greg uh, got connected with Chuck and Lonnie through this girl that he liked, a girl he thought was cute. She invited him to church and, and he came. And uh, he came from a very broken and dysfunctional home. And he was on this search for, for truth, for meaning, for purpose, for his life. And uh, as he begins to, to attend this church and to join this Jesus movement that's starting, God begins to do a work in his heart. He gives his life to Jesus, he gets baptized, and he starts to, to wrestle with this call to full-time pastoral ministry. And the end of the movie shows him uh, beginning to, to take over this new church plant that he would lead going forward. You know, the Jesus movement gained, gained so much attention. So many people were talking about it, not just in California, but across the country, that it ended up on the front page of the 1971 Times Magazine. And uh, during the movie, you see this reporter who's kind of going with them over several months and writing the story and, and hearing them share about what's going on. And he's kind of uh, amazed at everything that's taking place. Now, the church that Chuck Smith led came to be known as Calvary Chapel Church, a church that, that many of you may be familiar with. In fact, there are now over a thousand churches that have been started out of the Calvary Chapel Association, churches all over our country. Greg Laurie, the, the younger guy in the movie who becomes a, a pastor, uh, he still leads a, a very influential church in California called Harvest Christian Fellowship. And it's a church that's hosted these, these large-scale evangelistic events all over our country. Now, there have uh, certainly been critics of the Jesus movement, and uh, man, it was far from perfect. Because anytime people are in charge of something, there's going to be issues. There's going to be problems. This was an imperfect movement led by a group of imperfect people. 
Man, but God used this movement, the Jesus movement, to make a profound difference in our country. It's estimated that anywhere from 20 to 30 million people made professions of faith, came to be uh, known as, as Christians, followers of Jesus, as a result of this movement. It's probably uh, uh, up there with the, the most significant spiritual awakenings in the history of our country. But what's so fascinating when you, when you watch the movie and if you do some research and kind of read about the Jesus movement is that it began with a very unlikely group of people. It started with a bunch of hippies, a bunch of burnouts, a bunch of young adults, and they didn't have a whole lot of resources at their disposal. They didn't have a lot of authority. They didn't have a lot of influence, but they had this raw, just authentic and passionate love for Jesus. And God started this extraordinary movement, a movement that changed our country from these very simple and humble beginnings. And you see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus began a movement as well, a movement that has completely changed the course of history, a movement that still impacts our lives today. Like the reason that we gather on Sunday morning each and every week is because of this movement that Jesus began. And just like the, the Jesus revolution that we, we, we see in this film, it didn't begin with the kind of people that you would have expected. You know, when you read through the, the gospel accounts or you read the, the book of Acts, you see God using a very unlikely group of people to accomplish his purposes. He's, he builds this movement around this, this unlikely group. And today, what, what I want us to do is I want us to look at, at three groups of people that Jesus reached out to, that he engaged with in order to advance his, his movement. And as we look at these groups, you may find yourself identifying with one of these groups. You may see yourself in them. Uh, you may see, uh, be able to identify with the very people that Jesus reached out to. But what I also want us to do is I want us to think about and, and, and look through the, the lens of our lives as a church, as believers, and see how we can engage the very people that Jesus came for, the very people that Jesus loved, because these are the people he came to rescue. These are the people that he came to die for. So who did Jesus come for? Who did Jesus reach out to and engage and build this movement with? If you're taking notes, we're going to look at three groups today. The first one is this, is that Jesus came for the ordinary. He came for ordinary people. And what I love about the, the story of, of Jesus' revolution is that it began with this very ordinary group of people. You know, when the, the Jesus movement began, Pastor Chuck wasn't some well-known celebrity pastor. He didn't have a huge platform. He didn't have a lot of resources at his disposal. He was leading this really small and dying church. People didn't know him. People didn't know his church. He, he, was, he didn't have any kind of big platform. But when God got a hold of his heart, and when he finally surrendered himself to God's plan for his ministry, God began to use him in an incredible way. And you see just the, the, the posture of humility that he leads with throughout the movie. Greg Laurie, the, the younger guy in the movie, was this college kid from a very broken family. He wasn't raised in the church. He had no formal seminary training, but he started leading this Bible study at just 20 years old under Chuck Smith's leadership. And God began to, to multiply his efforts and impacted hundreds of thousands of people through his ministry. God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for his kingdom. 
And you see, when, when Jesus was beginning his, his ministry here on earth, he had to recruit this team to join him, a team that he would eventually hand his ministry, his movement off to. And I think the, uh, the strategic thing uh, would have been to recruit some people with a, a lot of resources, people with a lot of influence in the community, people with authority and power, people that could keep the movement going after Jesus was gone. You would want the varsity players on your team if you're building something from scratch. But who did Jesus choose to recruit? A bunch of ordinary people, a bunch of bench warmers. These were not the starters. This was not the varsity team. Uh, These were the guys who got picked last, and these were the people that Jesus built his team with. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ends his his earthly ministry. He he returns to heaven, and he leaves his disciples in charge of this movement that he began. And he empowers them with with the Holy Spirit. And God begins to to use them in in miraculous ways. They're they're healing people. They're performing miracles. They're preaching the gospel. And hundreds and hundreds of people were placing their faith and trust in Jesus. But two of the the primary leaders, these guys, James, or uh, Peter and John, Jesus' kind of core disciples, the guys who were leading the church, they were arrested shortly after Jesus returned to heaven. And they were brought in uh, by the religious leaders who began to, to question them. They wanted to know, by, by what power are you doing these things? By, by what name? Like, who do you think you are? Who has given you the authority to be doing what you're doing? And it says that Peter, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he told them, we're doing these things by the name and the power of Jesus. The guy that you killed, the guy that you crucified, but God brought back to life. He's speaking to the, the, the most uh, prestigious religious elites in his day saying, hey, you killed him, God brought him back to life, and he has given us this authority. And I love what it says in, in Acts chapter 4, the, the, the response from the religious leaders. It says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love that. They, they, they looked at them. They realized, man, these are just ordinary guys. These are unschooled men. There is nothing special about them. They hadn't received any formal religious training. They weren't from well-known families. They didn't hold positions of influence or authority, but they were amazed. They were astonished at what these young men were accomplishing. They couldn't believe the impact they were having in their city. And it says that they took note that they had been with Jesus. I mean, what an important reminder for us today. That when God is looking for, for someone to use, and he's not looking for the, the most gifted person. He's not looking for the person with the most resources or the most influence. He's not looking for someone who's been to seminary and has some formal education. Like there isn't this necessary list of qualifications that we have to meet to be used by God. God is simply looking for someone who has been with Jesus. Someone whose life has been radically transformed by him. Someone who loves him and desires to be used by him. All throughout history, what we see in the, in the Jesus movement and what we see at the, the beginning of the movement of the church with Jesus is that God has used ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things, 
through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's how God is continuing to build his kingdom today. That's how God is continuing to advance his church, not through extraordinary people with talent and resource and potential and gifting, but people who have been with Jesus, who have humbled themselves, surrendered themselves, and said yes to the call that God has placed on their life. Jesus came for the ordinary. He built his team with a bunch of ordinary people and transformed our world. The second group that we see that Jesus came for is that he came for the outcast. And you know, the Jesus revolution really began with a, a church and a pastor that, that was reaching people nobody else was reaching. People that other pastors didn't welcome into their church, people that Christians tended to avoid, people that were seen as outsiders and outcasts in society. And it was considered at the time radical, even irresponsible, to be reaching out and engaging and welcoming people like this. But when you read the, the gospel accounts, this is exactly what you see. You see that Jesus ministered, engaged with, reached out to the outcast, to the marginalized, the people that the religious leaders looked down on and dismissed and wanted nothing to do with. You see that Jesus, he spent time with the poor, who were neglected and ignored by society. Jesus spent time up close and personal with, with lepers, people that were considered unclean. He even touched them in order to heal them. Jesus spent time loving on and being with the Samaritans, people that were considered enemies of the Jews. Jesus elevated women and children who were viewed as second class and unimportant in society. He consistently pursued the people that no one else valued. And one night, Jesus, he was, he was dining with the, the most prominent religious leader in his city. In his city. And everybody who was there were, were, were guys with a lot of authority, who were respected. It was kind of the who's who of the, the religious community. And Jesus could, could tell what they were doing. They were all kind of jockeying for position with each other. They all wanted the, the seat of honor at the table. They wanted to be respected and admired by their peers. They wanted to, to puff themselves up and look better than they were. But Jesus, he wasn't impressed with any of this. He wasn't impressed with their, with their title or who they were or the position that they held. And, and listen to what he said to them in Luke chapter 14. Then Jesus said to his host, this prominent religious leader, he says, when you give a luncheon or, or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He says, look, when, when you throw a party, and don't, don't invite your friends, don't invite your family, don't invite your, your, your rich neighbor, don't invite the people who elevate your status, the people who can do something for you in return. Instead, I want you to invite the poor, the crippled, the, the lame, the blind, the people who can't repay you. The people who can't do anything for you in return, the people who don't elevate your, your status. And he says, and by doing so, you will be blessed and you will receive your reward, not on this side of eternity, but in heaven. 
You know, that, that, that dinner that, that Jesus attended with all of these religious elites, I think is often a picture of what the, the church can look like if we're not careful. It's a group of people who come together who are all polished and all put together and have it all figured out, people who are respected and admired, and it can become all about connecting with the important people, the people with influence, the people with status, the people that we can benefit from. And it can almost start to feel like this, this country club where it's all about the insiders. You look a certain way, you talk a certain way, you kind of fit the mold. Best followers of Jesus... Man, we're not called to be spiritual networkers where we pursue the people who can benefit us. We pursue the people who, who can do something for us, the people who elevate our status and make us look more important. No, we are called to pursue the people who can do absolutely nothing for us in return. The outcast, the marginalized, the, the outsider. And maybe you have felt like an outsider your entire life. And when it comes to, to church, you've never felt like you've belonged. You've never felt like you were in. You never felt like you were part of the club. Listen, Jesus reached out to the people that no one else welcomed or that no one else accepted. He, he dined with them. He gave them the seat of honor at his table, and he welcomed them into his kingdom. He came for the outsider. But man, maybe you've always been on the inside. And when it comes to, to church, you've always felt welcome. You've always felt like you belonged. You've always had a seat at the, the table. You've been known. You've been accepted. You're kind of part of the club. I think Jesus would say to you, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. The way that you treat the people who are different than you the way you treat the outsider, the way you treat the outcast, the way you treat the people who have been kind of neglected by the church or neglected by society as a whole, the way you treat them is the way that you treat Jesus. And we're called to pursue the outsider, to pursue the people who feel like they don't belong, who feel like they aren't accepted, because that is who Jesus came for. That is who Jesus pursued. That is who Jesus died for. And Jesus came for the ordinary. He built his team with all these ordinary, unschooled guys. Man, he came for, for the outcasts, for the marginalized, for the people who had been rejected by society, the people that the religious leaders looked down on and wanted nothing to do with. And thirdly, Jesus came for the sinner. You know, a big part of what made the people in, in Chuck Smith's church so uncomfortable was the lifestyle that many of these hippies were living. It was a lifestyle built around drug use, sexual freedom, communal living, and the people in the church didn't understand, hey, why, why are we welcoming and accepting these sinners? Why are we welcoming and accepting these people who think so much differently and have these different lifestyles and different values and, and different beliefs? Like, we can't condone how they're living. We can't just welcome them in. But you see, all throughout his ministry, Jesus was criticized by the religious leaders of his day for the exact same thing. Now, he spent time with sinners. He spent time with people who had different values, different beliefs, lived a different lifestyle. In fact, he even invited them into his inner circle. 
Like when Jesus was going around recruiting his 12 disciples, the core team, the people he would hand his ministry off to, he invited a tax collector to follow him, a guy who took advantage of other people for a living. And of course, this set the religious leaders off. And in Luke chapter five, it says this. Then Levi, who would later be known as, as Matthew, one of the core disciples, the guy who wrote the, the gospel of Matthew, says, then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, they complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what are you doing spending time with them? Why are you welcoming them? Why are you accepting them? But then Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sick. He came for the sinner. He came on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And here's what we need to remember today. Here's what we need to understand. Man, whether you grew up in church and gave your life to Jesus at seven years old and got baptized and went to VBS every summer and grew up in, in Christian school and went to a Christian college and have kind of lived in that Christian bubble your whole life, or you grew up in a broken home where you were far from God and you ran from God and you had all this baggage and mess in your life, whether you grew up as a Christian or you grew up far from God, we are all born as sinners in need of a Savior. Paul tells us in Romans that there is no one righteous, not even one. So when Jesus says, hey, I didn't come for the healthy, I didn't come for the righteous, he's right because there was no one who was healthy. There was no one who was righteous. Everyone was in need of a savior. But for those of us who have recognized our need for a savior, who have been found and been rescued by Jesus, and we've now been invited to join Jesus on this mission to seek and to save the lost. And we don't shy away from sinners. We don't avoid people with different values and different beliefs. We engage with them. We welcome them. We accept them. But what does this look like? Now, how, do we, how do we do this? Now, when we talk about Jesus, there, there's a tendency to focus on the fact that Jesus loved and welcomed sinners. And that's certainly true. That's what we, we find in Scripture. But we often ignore the fact that he did not condone and did not support their sinful lifestyle. You know, just last weekend during the, the Super Bowl, you may have seen a, an ad from a, a ministry and organization called He Gets Us. Um, this is a ministry that has uh, really grown in popularity over the last two or three years. Um, if you research them, it's kind of hard to figure out who they're affiliated with, what, what they're, they're all about, but they've got some serious money because they're getting Super Bowl commercials. Uh, any NFL primetime game, you're going to see one of these commercials. And listen, I, I'm not the guy who's all anti against this, this organization and their, their commercials. There's a lot of people, you know, they'll go on Facebook and complain and blast them. I, I'm, I'm not against them. I, I think they're, they're a great example of what we would call pre-evangelism. You know, in a 30-second ad, they're not sharing the, the entire gospel message, 
but they're kind of trying to help start a conversation about Jesus. And in a society where many people have not grown up with Christian influence, they don't know much about Jesus, they're trying to get people's attention to lead them to a place where maybe they'd be open to having a conversation about him. But I, I saw a, a really helpful post from a pastor named Josh Howerton who addressed the, the messaging that was being communicated from, from this commercial. And in the commercial, it shows Jesus washing the feet of people who live very different lifestyles, many of which are, are not consistent with God's word. And I, I, I love the picture of Jesus washing their feet because that's what you see in the gospel accounts. Jesus washed the feet of sinners. Jesus washed the feet of Judas, the guy who would betray him and hand him over to, to be crucified. But at the end of the commercial, it ends with this, this message on the screen that says, Jesus didn't teach hate. And I think most of us, we, we would agree with that. That's, that. that's a good message. Jesus didn't teach hate. But, but here's what I think the problem is. In our culture today, hate is interpreted as non-affirmation. So if you don't affirm somebody's values, somebody's beliefs, somebody's opinion, somebody's lifestyle, then it means that you hate them. To love them means to fully affirm them as they are, their values, their beliefs, their opinions, their lifestyle. And I think this ad can lead people to think, well, hey, since Jesus promoted love and Jesus didn't teach hate, he didn't promote that, then he has no expectation for us to change or to repent of our lifestyle, of our values, even if they are not consistent with God's word. I think if we're not careful, that's the message that's being broadcasted to our culture. But this isn't what we see in scripture. So think about the, the woman who was caught in adultery. The religious leaders found, found this woman caught in adultery and they, they bring her in front of, of Jesus. And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to undermine his, his influence, his reputation. And they throw her on the, the ground in front of him and they want him to condemn her. They want him to say that she should be stoned according to the law. And Jesus, he, he looks at these, these men and says, well, if any of you are without sin, you can go ahead and throw the, the first stone. And slowly, one by one, these religious leaders began to, to exit until it was just Jesus and this woman. And in John chapter 8, it says this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And Jesus, he didn't hate her. Jesus did not condemn her. He loved her, welcomed her, accepted her just as she was in all of her brokenness and all of her mess, but he didn't affirm her lifestyle. He didn't say, hey, don't, don't, don't worry about what you're doing. Hey, just live out your truth. Just be true to yourself. No, he told her to repent and to leave her life of sin. And you see, church, there's a big difference between accepting and affirming. Man, we are called to welcome and to accept people just as they are, to accept them with their baggage and their brokenness and their opinions and their beliefs because Jesus welcomed and accepted us just as we were when we were a mess, when we were completely broken. Man, but we can't affirm 
what is inconsistent with God's word. We can't affirm what flies in the face of biblical truth. Man, I I believe that this is the great temptation for our generation, especially for, for young pastors today. We will be tempted to compromise truth for the sake of cultural acceptance, for the sake of of being seen as as more relevant and more compassionate and more loving. But I believe that in order for us to to navigate this culture that we find ourselves in, a culture that's all about affirming everyone's opinions and beliefs, where everyone has their own truth and can do what they want, whether it's consistent with God's word or not, here's what we have to have. We must have tender hearts and spines of steel. Tender hearts, where we are loving, and we are gracious, and we are compassionate, where we step into people's mess and meet them right where they are, not expecting them to change, leaving that to God, leaving that to the Holy Spirit, meeting them in their brokenness, a tender heart. Man, but spines of steel. Man, where we hold firm and fast to what is true where we hold to the biblical convictions and truth that have been passed down to us, these things that have been plainly decided and spelled out for us, a tender heart, but a spine of steel. Jesus, he came for the ordinary. He came for for, for the outcasts, the people who had been neglected by the church, neglected by society. He came for the sinner and all their brokenness and all their mess. Now, he came for you. He came for me. And he invites us. He welcomes us just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to to get our act together before we come to him. He welcomes us and accepts us just as we are. But he doesn't leave us as he finds us. And he wants to transform us. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to, to a better life. And then he invites us to join him in this movement, a movement that began over 2,000 years ago, a movement that is still changing our world today. You know, maybe today, man, you, you would say, man, I've, I've felt like an outsider my entire life. I've never felt like I've belonged. I've never felt welcomed in the, the, the church. I felt pushed away and alienated by people who would say that they're Christians. And Jesus came for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus welcomes you. Jesus meets you right where you are. And today, I would believe, man, he's inviting you into a relationship with him. And But he doesn't want to leave you where he finds you. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He wants to invite you to, to follow him, to pick up your, your, your cross daily and enter into this, this, this relationship where you're becoming more and more like him. I'd say for, for many of us, we, we are believers. We are followers of Jesus. Man, but if we were honest, we, we don't have a heart for the people that Jesus had a heart for. And we, we push aside and ignore the people who are different than us, the people who make us uncomfortable, the people we don't naturally connect with, the people who vote different and think different and have a different lifestyle and different beliefs and different values. And today, I, I would just encourage you, I would invite you to, to just pray a very simple prayer, and it's this. God, 
give me a heart for the people that you love. Give me a heart for the people that you love. Help me to see them the way that you see them. Help me to love them the way that you love them. That is what God has called us to as, as a church, to accept, to welcome, to invite, and but to hold to truth, the truth that can transform a life, a truth that has transformed my life and, and many of your lives as well. Jesus came for you, and he came for me. So, Father, we, we thank you that you have pursued us. God, that 2,000 years ago, you stepped out of heaven on, on a risk, rescue mission to, to seek and to save the, the lost, to come and to, to restore a, a broken world. God, I thank you for, for the work you've done in, in my heart and my life. God, that you accepted me and welcomed me in my mess and my brokenness. But God, you didn't leave me there. God, you began a, a, a work of, of changing me, of transforming me. And God, my prayer is that as a, as a church, as believers, God, we would have your heart for other people. We would see people the way you do. We would serve them and love them the way that you served and you loved us. God, help us to, to be, be kind, to be compassionate, to be welcoming, to be gracious. But God, give us the boldness to stand on truth to not bend or to compromise to, to what the world says, but to hold fast to what you've already told us through your word. Jesus, give us the, the courage to follow you. We love you. Lord, we ask all of this in your name. Amen.